Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion. I'm your host as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Hi, everyone. Welcome to ADSR Inspirations. And I'm excited to reconnect with today's guest. It's been a little while since we've had a chance to talk. Probably I was thinking about it last time when we were both working uh, reporting on Fuji Rock Festival a few years back. So I'm keen to see what uh, Patrick's been up to. And so while I just dip my toes in the writing world from time to time. Patrick has uh, made a career out of writing and freelancing. Patrick St. Michel is a freelance writer, copy editor, and consultant based in Tokyo. He reports on and writes about a wide variety of subjects with a focus on Japanese music, pop culture, food, internet culture, travel, and more. Originally from the Los Angeles area, Patrick moved to Japan in 2009 and has been writing for publications like Japan Times, The Atlantic, Pitchfork, NPR, and many more. Patrick has also worked with companies and artists, both based in Japan and abroad. He's spoken at music conferences, um, including the Pop Conference in Seattle, the Shibuya Showcase Festival, and he's also appeared as a guest on a wide variety of radio programs, TV shows, podcasts. Please welcome to the show, Patrick St. Michel. Jeez, thank you for I forgot half of those things that I've done. I forgot all those conferences. <laughs> that must be a pure like pre-pandemic thing, like the idea of traveling. So hearing all that, I was like, whoa, I did so much in the past. <laughs> well, thank you for the, the trip down memory lane and thank you for having me today. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks for uh coming on. So, you know, as I just mentioned in my intro there, you've got quite a large body of work quite a quite a bit of writing in the past you know couple of decades I guess and um, you know you've done for tons of different publications throughout the years Um, I've noticed as of late as well like you've been coming on podcasts you've hosted your own podcast Um, you know like you just mentioned you've done some speaking gigs in the past so do you do you feel do you feel that like the written word is still like the most comfortable medium for you in terms of expression? Or do you feel like you kind of want to branch out a little bit and do more, say, like lectures or podcasts or video work? How do you kind of feel about, um, you know, the best way to express yourself? In terms of expressing myself and sort of what I want to do, especially in covering Japanese music and pop culture more generally, ultimately for me, writing is still just the way I feel most comfortable doing that. Um, I also think it's just the thing I've been doing the longest and really like focusing on it since like at least high school, let's say. So 
it's kind of the thing that comes most natural. And I do think for me, it's the easiest way to sort of convey what I want to. Uh, that said, I am always trying to like explore new sort of media pathways, if you will. Like, um, as you mentioned, I'm like, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think it's a really interesting medium. And it's been fun to sort of both be a guest on lots of podcasts, such as this one, and also just try to create something new. Uh, and yeah, in general, I guess I'm open to it, though I maybe personally, and perhaps this is just like a, a little, my own anxiety playing into it. It's like, there is part of it that's always a little bit like, oh, I, like, I don't know how to do video. I shouldn't be on a TV screen. Like, uh, I don't think that's for me. But at the same time, I do want to experiment more. And not just creatively, but also as the market itself, the media and creative markets kind of mutate. Like, it is becoming more important, I think, for people who want to do this as a career to have to at least be aware of these new platforms and media uh, ways of expressing themselves in media and like at least looking into them. I don't think everyone has to pivot to TikTok or anything. <laughs> right, but, right. Like, yeah, it's, I am always interested and I guess looking at my own media consumption, it's so all over the place. Like, it's not like I just read things, you know, I watch lots of YouTube videos, listen to podcasts, you know, it is, if I'm sort of looking at, how I take in information, it is something to consider like, oh, well, there must be other people like that too. And it's something to always keep in the back of your head. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. I want to kind of get into a little bit of your history with writing. Um, I know I know when you were growing up, um, probably more so than most, you were exposed to, let's say, um, different kinds of writing, and I know that your mom also worked as a freelance writer. Um, did you kind of always think that you'd be doing writing professionally? Maybe like, you know, junior high school, high school. I know also like you had mentioned to me before that uh, you were initially interested in sports and sports writing, and then you kind of pivoted uh, maybe later in university. Uh, what Was it kind of always like a a dream or like you always kind of assumed that you'd be a writer? Or I would say imagining writing as a career didn't really come into like something I seriously considered until high school. As you mentioned, my mom was still is a freelance writer. So when I was growing up, you know, she was contributing to places like Good Housekeeping and like uh, the Los Angeles Times, our local newspaper. So I was always exposed to that and had access to like books and magazines and newspapers. So I was always surrounded by that kind of media and of course TV as well. Um, but, you know, like when I was little and I'm sure most kids are like this, I think like until I was... 10 or 11 i was like i'm gonna be a video game designer yeah. like that was like your silly like childhood dream it was like i'll make a candy factory <laughs> like but it wasn't until high school and i guess kind of the combination of you know doing more in terms of writing original pieces i guess high school is when i started like contributing to the school newspaper and you kind of get that thrill of like seeing your work 
published, even if it's for like 200 other kids in the middle of like the desert in California, (laughs) coupled with the fact like I'm not good at like by high school, I knew I'm terrible at math. I don't know anything about science. Like I'm realizing like the paths I can truly take where I'm not going to feel like an idiot. (laughs) So And as you touched on initially, I was really drawn to sports writing. Um, I've always just like really liked sports growing up. Um, I would just watch everything that I could. Uh, And the sports section, especially of like the LA Times, that's what I kind of read as much as I could on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. So for me, it was always initially, and maybe this is a different manifestation of like, Ooh, kids big dreams yeah initially i really wanted to be a sports writer and kind of because i thought that was a really interesting like um and sort of i don't want to say globe traveling but you would get to move more and see more of the world uh so that's kind of what i was working for initially to be like you know i'm going to go to college i'm going to study journalism i'm going to become a sports reporter somewhere Right. Um, I guess concurrently to all of this, though, and I forget when it started. I just remember in junior high school, just finding more music blogs and music websites. Uh, Pitchfork being a particularly pivotal one for me personally. And just reading those like every day for fun. Like, mm-hmm. and just music was something I never thought about, like, writing about. You know, when I was in high school and even college for a long period of time. But it was something I was always actually absorbing just as equally as sports. So right. I guess that was kind of, you know, building a foundation somewhere there. Right, right, right. In in those, I guess, formative days, those early years, um, were you consuming a lot of music and pop culture? Were you like going to shows? Were you big into bands? Um how how did that sort of like now your kind of your niche is kind of you know pop culture and music writing were were you always kind of big into that growing up as well it was definitely always around and i remember especially you know like junior high school in particular i don't know why but like i would like wake up early even though i don't think i had to <laughs> And, like, MTV was, like, the only thing that was on. So it was, like, the early 2000s. So it had, I would say, a more eclectic mix of music videos at that point. So I'd, like, watch a lot of that. And I definitely would, yeah. Oh, well, you, you mentioned I'm from the L.A. area in the right. intro. I, it's important to stress I'm from a part just north of L.A. that's, like, um, there's more horses in the city. <laughs> it's not a city, first off. There's more horses in the town than there are people. Um, Really rural, like true, like Wild West existence. Right. Right. I I think I remember you saying it was famous for uh, the Flintstones movie being filmed there, right? (laughs) Yes. In 1996, I think. It was like, oh, they're filming the Flintstones down the street. I mean, basically the claim to fame is like anytime Hollywood needs to go to like a deserted planet, uh, (laughs) <laughs> prehistoric times uh middle east they go to right. where i grew up because it's right, right, right. pretty desolate 
Um, so I didn't go to many shows is the key. Like okay. I was so far from anything and like I'm, my mom wasn't going to drive me an hour and a half to go see something. Right. But I think that's probably important because for me that meant, you know, music fandom and just learning about music was done primarily online. Um, so I was absorbing more music writing because for me that was the only way I could get to it. Um, you know, and it was also easier for me to find people who had similar taste and things I was interested in. I like the people in junior high school and high school, there weren't many people where our like the things we liked aligned natural feeling i think for a lot of teenagers so the internet became a place i could do that and especially whether it was like message boards or just reading even like yeah like a pitchfork or a spin like just mm -hmm. reading people who clearly had this deep interest in music and learning more about it that was really exciting and i think that's what really shaped me um, mm -hmm. so the internet is really vital to sort of how I've become interested in not just music, but pop culture, because I guess, yeah, growing up, that was something that like entered my childhood midway through. And it is kind of like, I, maybe you had the same experience, right, like, right. you know, one day you have AOL or CompuServe yeah. and you're like, whoa, the world's at my fingertips. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So during this time as well. So, you know, I guess it's a combination, sports, music, pop culture stuff. Did you have certain writers that you'd be following or certain people that you always wanted to read or I guess influenced you? Hmm. Especially growing up and in college with, I'm trying to think with sports. With sports, it was always very local. Um, and hey, this honestly might if you want a snapshot of that industry, like, um, you know, growing up, it was a lot of local columnists and writers. So like beat reporters for the LA times columnists who were contributing to the LA times of mixed quality, but getting that local perspective was really interesting. Uh, but over time, as all sports media has, it shifted to like, you know, more of a national look at things, you know, ESPN became more central and, I just remember reading way more like ESPN and like watching stuff like pardon the interruption. Um, mm -hmm. Anyone who doesn't remember that show, it was two columnists who worked at the Washington post, like yelling at each other every day about like, should you draft Jeremy shock in the first round? Uh, but so I would always follow that, I guess those sort of TV shows and stuff. And I would say it start. I started losing track of like specific writers by the time I got to college. <clears throat> With music writing, though, growing up, it was always Pitchfork was the first place I kind of found that was not just willing to sort of like go over the top in praise of music, but also be really negative about music, which right. like. This probably says a lot about my character, but like I loved that, that it was so harsh at times. Sure. So a lot of those writers who were kind of in the pitchfork orbit in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, they were very influential. And I like literally read pitchfork every day. Like mm -hmm. I knew what time the site would update daily. So I'd be like ready to <laughs> right. see like what the new I still do, which is like maybe. <laughs> A little bit of an issue but 
Um, so Pitchfork was really important in that front. The other major publication growing up for music that I think shaped where I would go, uh, it's now defunct, unfortunately. It was a website called Stylus, Stylus Magazine. Mm-hmm. And they also just had an equally like rich set of writers who were, you know, just looking uh just looking at all kinds of music from not just america but all around the world and sort of offering a really really good angles on it really good perspectives and that taught me how to like you know everything has value so like it's important not to just dismiss things right away and Mm. this website sort of taught me a different way of approaching things critically and from a reporting eye. So those two I followed. I still follow Pitchfork and Stylus until they close at the end of the 2000s were like really influential in Mm -hmm. shaping my love of music writing. Right, right, right. I'm also a little curious, um, you know, when a lot of people get into writing, maybe... It's not necessarily from like the uh, nonfiction angle or like the journalist angle. What uh, what kind of experience do you have um, in terms of like fiction writing? And is that something you enjoy as well? And what made you decide to take the more, I guess, nonfiction or the journalist um, route in your writing? I guess with fiction writing, it's just something I would do like in school, I think. I don't know. It's That's a good question because I don't know why. I've never been particularly interested in writing fiction. I like, I like reading fiction, of course, and like absorbing that and fiction in general, TV and so forth. But like, yeah, it's something I never really wrote. Maybe like early teens trying it just like at home when I'm bored. But I guess I was always, part of it might be just growing up with, you know, my mom being a writer who she didn't write fiction. Her stuff was, she did a lot of interviews with people. She did a lot of sort of column writing, um, many of which actually involved me because she was writing for good housekeeping and kind of like a parenting column. So like right. I was kind of like a like a test subject <laughs> for, in a good way. Um, right. So I guess everything the writing I was most exposed to was always from a place of reality, I guess, or at least you know the world we're in, and that goes with sports reporting, of course, where you're kind of very directly at its most basic, like X team beat Y team. Here's a factual score, right? And then with music writing, kind of similar, though I would say music criticism in particular, I think, showed me you could be more sort of, you could add more flair, you could add more character to your writing Mm -hmm. um, in a way that's probably for me the closest I would come to fiction writing uh, in that you can sort of experiment with the form more. Right, I guess more... um more opportunity to be creative than you know just like a sports beat writer who just yeah or even just a music profile where it's kind of just sitting down with somebody and being like here are the facts plus maybe some observations right right that makes sense um so then 
yeah, I guess just following your story along, you went to a pretty uh, a pretty well known, a, a pretty reputable um, college for journalism in uh, yes. Northwestern, <laughs> yeah. and um, following, you know, I believe you had a you had what was it an internship working in Florida, mm-hmm. doing some sports writing basically right kind of yeah <laughs> well <laughs> we can you, get into that <laughs> yeah which i think i remember you saying kind of put you off um sports writing so i guess yeah. that was a good experience to have a very good experience for yeah determining the next like junction and everything right 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 <laughs> and then um i get so all all the while like through college i think with um it was with your roommate you had started um you had started it was north by north north by north western. east <laughs> oh western north yeah by northwest the movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah the movie okay the, the <laughs> yeah. movie is north by northwest north by northwestern yeah. was the yeah. online publication right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah and um so how many it was the two of you that kind of organized it right in maybe like your second year or something how many writers we're writing for that at one time. I remember when it started, because yeah, the sort of the seed of the idea, um, primarily, I always want to make sure, yeah, my roommate, sophomore year, Tom Gerard-Kanan, who's now, I want to say working at Vox, actually. He was at New York Times, maybe moved to Vox. Uh One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, Absolute genius. Um, He was my roommate, so he got stuck with me, (laughs) who's the opposite of that. And... Yeah, we wanted to try something different because at the time at Northwestern, which is a very, you know, it has a reputation as a very good journalism school. Uh, I think we specifically came at a weird limbo period where the, the school was very focused on sort of old school, like newspaper, magazine, broadcast. Like the internet wasn't something the school really considered mm-hmm. at that point, but the two of us and many other people, as we soon found out, you know, we're, we're consuming everything online at this point. Of course. Yeah. Like, so we decided like, Hey, like, what if we tried to do this? Um, and yeah, it was most, it was the two of us starting it initially, just like talking about it. I remember Tom came down during the summer of like, before it started, he came down to California and we went to Comic Con <laughs> together. Beautiful, <laughs> wonderful. We saw the Snakes on a Plane uh, conference. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the film Snakes on a Plane oh, yeah. with Samuel L. Jackson. That yeah. was delightful. Uh, but during that, we kind of like talked a lot about it, thought of ideas. I remember we went back to school that following year, and it was mostly just people in our dorm, which was kind of the quote unquote like communications dorm. So we had mm-hmm. a lot of sort of aspiring journalists like down the hall i think initially it was like 12 people maybe maybe a little less really small tom really like he has all the technical knowledge a running theme in my career is i (laughs) will work with people who can handle all of the technical side of things the same way that alan is really good at editing the podcast where i'm just like i'll send you the file so initially it was around there but by the time we wrapped it up, or by the time we graduated, me and Tom, yeah. 
2009. It was way more. I mean, it was okay. surprising how many people like wanted to contribute. Um, just because, and it's the thing that still surprises me, and I think is probably the best part about it is it's still going and still mm-hmm. attracting lots of young writers at the school, and like me and Tom have been away from it so long. It's like great that it's just its own thing that like we pushed into the world. Right, right, right. Um, maybe at the end, 40-ish, right? Like 40-ish wow. people contribute. It was a lot. It's yeah. I honestly don't remember though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the writing you were doing for it was mainly... All um, over the place. Oh, okay. It was a bit of everything then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you guys were kind of acting as like a editor-in-chief and de- delegating Chaos stuff. Agent. and I okay. don't know what my role was... Man, I like really experimented and just went wild. <laughs> like, it's funny in retrospect because there's a lot of things that kind of became, I'm not a trailblazer whatsoever, but like, it's funny to look at what we were doing and be I was like, oh, this is what like online media became in the next like 10 years. Like a good basic example was when it started, I ran something called Cute Animal Blog Mm-hmm. And it was just me, like, because I, like, need to watch videos of cats and red pandas, just, like, chill out. Like, I would just share interesting things posted to YouTube. That was just, like, a cat doing something. Uh, it was great. And, like, but, yeah, like, eventually that is kind that became, like, for five years, a major cornerstone of how internet reporting and culture sites functioned. Right. Um, and in general, I think what we did was Tom was really good at organizing, being an editor in chief, you know, sort of dictating what kind of content we wanted to run. Um, I assisted a lot. I was I'm better at creating things and like, mm-hmm. especially if somebody like wants to do something, I'm kind of willing to like jump into it and see what happens, like even if it goes awry. Um so that was important is we were willing to try things that other like within this ecosystem of a, you know, student media, other places wouldn't try at that point. And I think that attracted people that you could sort of do more and express more of the feelings and just like, yeah, try different things and go from there. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess, especially like you mentioned at the time, yeah, it was yeah maybe a little bit uh, ahead of the curve and uh, a little bit. The biggest thing I think, and credit to Northwestern and the Medill School of Journalism, I think they you know they quickly like had very good online like teaching and courses for future students. It was mm-hmm. just literally that like there, there was like a two year gap where we happened to fall where it just right. they didn't know that and like but we like. Yeah, we read, like, I read Pitchfork, Tom read Slate, um, mm-hmm. everybody watched YouTube. It's like, you could tell everything was going digital. So it was like, we were just able to be like, hey, let's try this. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> the worst that could happen is we ended up like, I do remember our senior year when the site got bigger. It was like, because Tom and I still lived together um, on off campus housing later on. And like, there were days we'd be there till 5 a.m., like from 8 p.m. till 5 a.m. We'd just be in this room in the journalism building. 
like working on stories and putting everything up and like yeah there were days we were just like wiped out (laughs) for sure it's a good time so in terms of so that publication in terms of readership like were you able to track kind of uh how many people were reading it was it mainly like um people at the school or was it you know certain demographics throughout the I don't know, Chicago area, or did it kind of extend beyond that? Were you kind of following like who was reading it and were you able to track that kind of thing? Tom definitely was. And the other people who sort of took on leadership positions as the years went on definitely did. So I guess we were on top of, yeah, analytics. Right. And seeing kind of like what was doing well and what, you know, wasn't doing well. Though I would say we weren't sort of, obsessed with it in the way that I think a lot of publications today are. Um, Though at the same time, we were also like just a college publication kind of doing it for fun for the most Mm -hmm. part and kind of just as a way to like build our own skills. So it wasn't like that important. I would say for the most part, it was read by, yeah, other students on campus. Though, and this, I guess, is just the power of the internet, you know, there would be stories that would sort of go further and like get attention or be picked up by um, other publications, like quote unquote, you know, real publications in the real media sphere. Um, even it was saying just like, Hey, look at this cool thing that this North by Northwestern site did. Right. So there were moments that, or you would get comments from people who would just be like completely separate from the Northwestern or even Chicago experience. And they just be like, Oh, Hey, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it was all, it was an interesting early thing is realizing, you know, it's not just limited to the campus. It can sort of go beyond. For sure. Yeah. Um, So I guess at that time, your focus was mainly, um, on doing that and of course you know studying and getting through school uh, i don't even think i studied at that point to be <laughs> honest i was so bad like especially like sophomore junior year i was like mm, yeah not not the best student which is a, another recurring theme but well, i did really put a lot of energy into north by northwestern even if it was right. just like being like a cheerleader <laughs> of being like hey guys we can do this right so, so- Right. So that was, that was your big focus at the time. Um, You weren't really, you weren't really reaching out and trying to write for other publications as well at the time, or were you a little bit? Not really. Maybe this is just, this might just be sort of an old school, like, you know, pre-recession way of thinking. But I guess the way I always thought a career in journalism or media worked was like, you do you go to college you work at a student newspaper you get internships that are unpaid of course and then you like uh you get a job question mark like so for me i wasn't even and it might just be a lack of ambition too but like i never was like trying to be like i'm gonna pitch a story somewhere for Mm -hmm. me it was always trying to build these follow this ladder basically and it was kind of like, in the summer, I'll focus on getting an internship. And then I'll use that to get a better internship. And then, hey, somebody's going to have to... Journalism, what could go wrong <laughs> with the journalism market? Nothing at all. Uh, so I never did that. For me, it was always just... 
I mean, a cynical way to look at it, I guess, is always like, oh, I'm going to make sure my resume looks really good. Like, it's really cool that North by Northwestern is doing well. And I can be like, look at this neat thing I co-founded, kind of, though. Let's make sure the right person gets the attention. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I didn't really. It was all kind of just focused there uh, right. in at Northwestern. Right, right, right. So then you did do, you know, you did follow that path in your head and you did do the internship mm-hmm. in the uh, in the sports writing and yeah. then you kind of realized through doing that hold on right. this yeah this maybe isn't for me so this was yeah. this was kind of near your last year yeah it was school, the start right? start of my senior year senior year one of the reasons i'd really wanted to go to northwestern and medill the journalism school was they did this thing called I have, wow it's been so long I forget what it's called but gist of it is for one quarter of your time there usually senior year you get to intern at a newspaper or TV station or magazine depending on what track you choose and so I always thought that was really cool like ooh one day mm-hmm. I get to just have a I get to go somewhere new and work um. So that was actually one of the big reasons I wanted to go there. I thought that was a really neat idea, knowing that there'd be like a three-month period of my life where I'd just be able to do that. For sure. So that was my senior year. So that was 2008, fall of 2008. And uh, even up to that point, you know, I was doing way less sports writing um, and was already kind of like kind of not as into it as I used to be. It was a combination of, I don't know. I just, it wasn't the type of writing I was enjoying as much. I was finding when I was writing about sports for North by Northwestern, it was doing sort of sillier things or more experimental things. Mm -hmm. Like I remember (laughs) I covered a basketball game at our school. It was Northwestern versus Stanford. I think Stanford was an okay team at that point. Mm-hmm. And like the just I decided I wanted to do something interesting. So I did a live draw of the game. So like instead of doing a live blog of writing like, oh, player scores bucket, I like opened MS Paint and just drew what I was seeing wow. and like posted that. I remember, like, the other publication on campus, the big established newspaper, the Daily Northwestern, the the goofs at their sports section thought it was, like, sacrilegious. Of course. But, like, and that kind of gets to why I didn't like sports writing at the time. It was just, like, everyone was so, like, no, you have to do it this way. Right, like, okay. But I liked being, like, kind of, like, yeah, it's not the, it's not a genius idea. I, like, tried to draw the stupid Stanford tree, you know, like, it's the like, yeah. horrifying tree that has googly eyes. <laughs> Like, I was trying to draw that in MS Paint. And, like, yeah, it's not, like, Nobel winning stuff, but, like, it was fun, and I liked it. So that attitude I didn't really line up with anymore. And there was things, like, I remember a big thing for me personally was, um, to loop it back, one of the co-hosts of that ESPN show, Pardon the Interruption, Michael Wilbon, he's a very established journalist, mm-hmm. um, he went to Northwestern and he came to our school a junior year to do like a little, you know, just like a guest night, ask me questions thing. And I just remember his attitude towards the internet was so like, 
old man yells at Cloud that I found it so off-putting. Yeah. And it just kind of tied into this thinking of like, oh, wow, I really just don't line up with how a lot of people apparently in this industry think. Right. So then, but still, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this internship somewhere and, you know, still do sports because, like, that's kind of what I always wanted to try. It'll be fun and great. Um, so I go to the South Florida Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, as the name would imply. And yeah, I was there for three months and I mostly did sports things, but like, yeah, it was we. I just didn't like it. Like, yeah, I don't know. I just realized during that point, it just wasn't for me anymore. Um, the people at that paper were all very nice and like very good at their job. So I don't want to imply that any of them were like, you know, like they disillusioned me or anything. It was just realizing that like, you know, it was a cool experience, but I realized, oh, this isn't really what I want to do. Right. So, and that sent me into existential dread. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's important because being so separate from you know the campus and just the journalism school in general like i was trying to figure out oh what am i going to do next and like for whatever reason just while being alone in south florida like i applied for a teaching program in japan which i really there are a lot of times i'm wondering like why did i do that (laughs) specifically right but for whatever reason i decided to apply to this because i was like I don't think journalism and writing is the direction I want to go anymore. So oh, let's okay. just like complete. Yeah. 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 It was a complete kind of like, or at least let's take a pause. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. it. Let's like yeah. regroup and yeah, do something sure. different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was the state you were at a little, a little disillusioned <laughs> from writing hyper, and hyper uh, disillusioned. <laughs> looking to kind of, uh, well, I've certainly been there, you know, like you said, uh, looking to sort of avoid the whole career thing or, yeah. and then it eventually finds you, um, yeah. but so you can't, you can't run <laughs> away from life and careers and responsibilities forever. You sure can try though. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you're, you're in Japan then you go with the yeah. j- jet program, I believe, right? Yes, so, I applied in the fall of 2008, did the whole interview process in Chicago. I remember like the day of my interview, I had totally forgotten to wear a belt. So like it was like 830 in the morning and I was panicking like in downtown Chicago. So like I there was a gap open for some reason. So I just bought a belt. It was, yeah, it was a total like I thought it was like the end of the world at the time. So but yeah, I did that. Apparently, I approved. I met their criteria and yeah they said i could go in august 2009 to go live in the wonderful mie prefecture countryside and teach junior high schoolers english that they were 30 percent interested in well you know maybe you bumped it up to uh 40 or 50 i was (laughs) maybe 35 to be fair 35. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious how soon after you started your blog and the, the flame, the fire for writing sort of got uh, reignited. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess one of the important things was throughout like all of this weird like journalism, what what's the point like disillusionment is music writing and like all of that for me was still just like a fun thing to do. I did do a little bit of like reviews and like maybe interview every once in a while for North by Northwestern related to music. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I did do that for MBN, but I guess the main thing I always thought was, oh, this isn't a career. Like, this is just, I'm doing this because I love it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that sounds so cliche saying it, but like, I guess so it's you, true. you kind of kept that going throughout even. Yeah, with North by Northwestern, I did that just because I thought, you know, like, I guess, yeah, I mean, I never really thought about it like as... I don't know. Like with sports, the idea, I guess, was always kind of like, okay, this is going to lead to something. With music Mm. writing, it was always just like, oh, this is enjoyable for me. And I get to sort of dive into something I already like. Were you still writing for North by Northwestern after you had graduated or you kind of? um... Oh, no, no. After I graduated, I was. Yeah, you were done with it. Okay, Okay. right, right, right. And I guess uh, another slight important thing is after the JET program sort of accepted me, it's funny because, you know, they didn't announce it until like early April. Um, mm-hmm. So like, that's also a weird time because like, okay, what am I going to do next if I don't get this? Right. So like I was trying to find an internship and I was able to, through a friend, get an internship at Pitchfork, which was based in Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. Time. Yeah. So for, this was a week before I got the jet confirmation. So mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh, cool. This is great. And then like a week later, it was like, okay, cool. You're going to Japan. It's like, oh, I guess I'll still do this. So I did spend like two months interning at Pitchfork, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. And like, just, it was interesting to see how a publication like that functioned at the time. And, you know, just kind of continued to be like, oh, okay, this is cool. Was the, the internship was only two months or c- could it have gone on longer? Oh, it probably could have gone on longer. Yeah. But for me, it was just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Japan now. Like, Right. Okay. Yeah. You didn't you didn't think, oh, well, maybe this pitchfork thing is more important than going to Japan. No, no. Yeah. It's at, at the time. Okay. Yeah, that's that's funny. I never considered that, which is I guess for me, it was always and this might actually tie to how more of more of a hobby it felt like. Hmm. Where it was kind of like, you know, like, this is really cool. And this is a neat experience for somebody who like, updates the site daily to see what the people in this room are rating things. Mm -hmm. Like, but I was never like, oh, this could turn into something bigger for me. It was just like, oh, this is cool. I'll do this instead of going to Italian history class. Right. And like, hopefully I won't flunk out my last quarter, but. See, okay. it was more of like a, a thrill. And I think that was important because it made everything feel just more fun um, mm-hmm. and less of like a less of something to stress out about and be like, I have to build connections. I have to like right, okay. turn this into something. Yeah, sure. yeah. Okay, right. So then you're in Japan and um, what's like the impetus for starting your blog then? Uh, the starting point is... Just literally, I went to, I was living in a city on the western part of Mie Prefecture, which for anyone listening who does not know obscure 
Japanese geography. It's kind of between Nagoya and Osaka. Um, and it's basically like a suburb of Osaka. So it's not mm-hmm. the most exciting place. It's, uh, it's a bed town. It's where people who have to take 90 minutes to commute to Osaka return to to sleep and like have their families grow up there because it's peaceful and a little bit idyllic. Um, not an exciting place for a 22 year old. <laughs> right. And so basically the blog was in large part to entertain myself after work. Cause it was just like, you know, I'd already, I'd been doing music writing for fun before for North by Northwestern. And I thought, well, Hey, I should do something. And like, I don't know much about Japanese music. I've only experienced a handful of artists up to this point that have gotten attention from sites like Pitchfork or just from friends saying like, check this thing out. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, hey, it'd be neat to kind of like find interesting Japanese music, blog about it. And like, that'll like keep me, it'll keep me entertained in Mie. And it will also like introduce me to really good Japanese music, I hope. So I'll learn something in the process. Um, and that's important because, yeah, I also just, in- just encountered like a wide variety of Japanese music early on that I never would have heard in America, like in 2009. Um, sure. A very important one being hearing uh, the group Perfume. They, I heard one of their songs playing in an electronics store, Kei's Denki. Mm-hmm. and like a week after i had gotten to mie and it like blew my mind it was like this is incredible yeah. like mm-hmm. i'll never hear this like um and obviously that was a real trigger um and like made me want to just dive deeper and deeper and kind of tying everything together you know the internet was something you could use to sort of discover this music and have easier access to it like, I remember the blog early on was mostly just linking to MySpace. Right. I, which is insane to think about now. <laughs> but yeah, it was just like going through MySpace, you'd see other Japanese artists top eight and just clicking their friends and then like seeing if that music was interesting. And then the occasional weekend trip to Osaka, go to a record store or go to a random show. Early on, I went to just I would just walk into venues I read about online and be like, what's happening tonight? Nice. Um, See, initially it was very much like, yeah, just a way to sort of, you know, make the the weekdays like go by (laughs) easier. Mm -hmm. But it was fun. And it was also a way for me to sort of find a personal connection with where I was living. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, for the first two years, it was obviously like super small. It was just like a WordPress site, um, just put together very hastily. And, but there were people who read it, which was always surprising to me. Like a mm-hmm. very small, but like it was cool that other people were encountering it and seeing and being like, oh, this is interesting. I'm like, oh, this is well written. Thank you. Right. Right. I mean, I guess it kind of led you to, um, you know, led you to Japan Times stuff and led you to other other work. Um, I'm kind of curious then, like, you know, I know since the blog, you've done a bunch of like freelance writing. I guess Japan Mm -hmm. Times is one of the first 
uh, publications and then you've done stuff for different, you know, American publications, um, different, I guess, worldwide publications. Yeah. yeah. It's all over the place. Yeah. All over <laughs> the place, really. And, um, yeah, you relocated to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you kind of, how do you kind of view like, so early on it was kind of, it wasn't like your main job or like a source of income and your main, or yeah, I guess a source of income at all at first. And then, um, eventually like as you know, your writing started picking up your freelance work started picking up, you were still like, when I met you in Tokyo, you were still working on the side what when did kind of like the moment or when did you kind of think okay well i can i can stop you know stop my teaching gig or i can make this like my full-time my full-time thing Mm -hmm. i'm when did i move to tokyo i forget the exact year i want to say 2012 and yeah for the first not five years maybe three or four years yeah, I was still working for a private company at this time as a English teacher and writing uh, less on the side now, because at this point, Japan Times had approached me um, with an important, I think, a guest of yours. I don't know if this episode's aired yet or not. Right. But, uh, Ian Martin was actually the first person to sort of like encounter the blog and introduce it to the music editor at the Japan Times at the time. So he's to blame for me having any of this. Uh, But yeah, I was doing more writing and actually pitching more places and sort of, yeah, like I was writing for Pitchfork at that time while still also, you know, doing, playing uh, Shiditori with my students at the start of class every day to try to get them to remember like cat and dog. Um. So the key reason I was doing that was there's no romantic reasons here purely for the visa Mm -hmm. because there was no way I'd be making enough at that point to sort of go for the elusive freelancers visa. Um, So I needed sort of the teaching visa to sort of be present in the country and do what I was doing. Um, The completely unexciting reason why I could finally get out of it was I got married and I had access to the spouse visa in Japan, which allows you to do way more um, without some of the requirements like Mm -hmm. that maybe when you're starting out freelancing in particular are very difficult to hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was I was purely just like my wife was kind of like, yeah, you should just try it. Um, it helped a lot that the teaching job was really bad. The school I was at was kind of a nightmare. Mm. Um, like just kids fighting in the middle of class, throwing scissors at each other. Yeah. Uh, so I was desperate to get out of there. And I right. wasn't, wasn't a good teacher either. I was kind of like checked out by that time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, it was just purely everything lining up sort of i guess being in japan long enough where yeah it's kind of like okay i'm gonna try to have roots here i guess Mm -hmm. and then just taking that plunge um with like yeah a very supportive partner who's kind of like yeah you should try it 
Right. And yeah, just plugging away from there. Right, right, right. It seems like you've had these little these little moments or these like indicators in your life <laughs> where, you know, it's pointing you in certain directions, you know, the thing yeah. with the sports writing and then, you know, like the incident as the teacher, you're just like, all right, well, okay, I'm going to, you know, focus my energy <laughs> on this. Um, so I guess, you know, when you're, when you're doing writing, I know a lot of people who are in a situation where they don't make it like their full, um, their full mm -hmm. source of income or their full career, because maybe like you said, when you have to do it full time, when you have to always pitch or when you have to kind of hustle, it kind of potentially loses something or like you can lose a bit of your creativity or something like You'll that. Just burn out, so. Right, 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 right. I'm kind of curious for you, like um, how that's been, how the process, you know, only writing, like structuring your days, like keeping mm -hmm. the passion for different subjects, how, how that whole process has been for you. I mean, early on, it was definitely just kind of exciting being able to sort of, you know, I have a whole day I can structure how I want. Um, and so, yeah, early on, it was very sort of chaotic, I guess, um, especially in those early years of just freelancing, that was all I was doing, like only writing things. So it was it was a lot of like trying to figure out what comes next and trying to, you know, get things done by deadline and or writing emails, begging editors, hey, give me an extra day. Uh, so for me, it was kind of just like, for maybe at least the first year, there was kind of just a feeling of like, okay, cool, I got to like build a foundation so I can like do more. It was a lot of just like not stopping, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, kind of being able to like, oh, cool, I can take a nap during the day if I want. It's a very like right. initial freelancer thing where you're kind of like, ooh, I play by my own operating hours. Um, I will say an important thing, and this is, I think, good advice for anyone who wants to write freelance. Um, I definitely today don't just do writing. Like I juggle a lot of different things besides writing um, or I should say editorial writing. You know, I do copy editing. I do copywriting for companies and some music, some not. Um, I do a lot of like weird editing jobs and even like audio jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very, very nice. Um, it's just all over the place. And I think it's actually important to if you're especially getting into culture writing in 2021, it's important to be open-minded about trying lots of different things and not thinking you just have to write to make a living because mm -hmm. that'll be tough. And I think it would be very difficult to just try to do that exclusively with like pitch, 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 write something, pitch, 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 rejection, rejection, rejection. Uh, yeah. hope somebody pays me. Yeah. Um, but in terms of structure, it's, easier nowadays just because i've sort of been able to develop enough like different lanes i guess where it's like you know i can at least plan a little more in advance of like okay on wednesday i have to go here to do this job 
And then, you know, the hours before and after I can try writing stuff or catching up on emails. I'm still pretty disorganized. I don't have like a daily routine outside of like necessary things like eating breakfast or taking my daughter to school. Mm. But I do just try to make sure I know what I need to do for each day. And like, even if I have to kind of stay up to do it, just make sure it's done. Um, but there is still something quite fun about that. I like the unpredictability of freelancing. Um, I like how sometimes you can just get a weird offer to like, you know, like uh, a local government will invite you to like do a little junket of the countryside. And it's like, okay, cool. I can go on a trip for three days. Like that's right. out of nowhere. Or, you know, with um, music writing, there's always a chance like uh, just the other day I went to a show, which was first off crazy post pandemic post big air right. quotes pandemic. Um, but just being able to know like, Oh cool. I can do that. And then that's part of what I'm doing. That sort of spontaneity plus the excitement of being able to try all these different things that really kind of continues to push me forward. Mm-hmm. Well, um, plus like, so, sorry, this might be a little off, off, what you're asking but like the other important thing for me that keeps me sort of coming back to especially music writing is um having done this for a decade now like there's still so few people writing about japanese music Mm. like on a sort of english and the english language sphere like it's still kind of surprising to me so it's that a drive to kind of be like oh, well, this is really interesting. And like, these artists have very interesting things to say, and I can sort of talk to them and broadcast their thoughts to you. Mm -hmm. So that might actually be the continued biggest motivation is like, I feel music from Japan is still quite underrepresented and almost ignored by certain publications. So the ability to sort of still have a space where people can go to learn about it in English and learn about the artists, uh, that still really pushes me because I still am like just love that element of it, and I still just love music, which is good. <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess which is you know essential. Yeah, don't um, lose that. That would be a problem. <laughs> well, like you said, I think more so um, in the recent years, having those more like extra and regular doing the copywriting or the more you know stable sources of income seems to be like a key part to being able to maybe let's say like pick and choose um what kind of writing you do Mm -hmm. and not having to you know be desperate just to take anything (laughs) or you know like like you say pitching everything and anything to you know the whole world basically um i'm kind of curious like you know you've got like a bit of a specialty like you said in um japanese music and japanese pop music are you when, when did did the interest really come after you arrived in japan um are there like other japanese art forms um you know whether it be like film or like more like traditional stuff? Um, are there other, you know, 
Japanese arts, or it could be, you know, more formal art that you are interested in that you have written about? That's a good, I guess like a lot of people, you know, especially growing up in the United States in the nineties, like it's something you don't, you're not even necessarily conscious of, of how much Japanese pop culture you're surrounded by actually. Like, like I was obsessed with Nintendo when I was growing up, I would just Mm -hmm. play super Nintendo for hours after school. Like, I didn't know that was like, I knew it was from Japan, but I wasn't like, oh, that's cool. Cool Japan. It's just like, oh, cool. I'm going to play all these things from Japan. And like, that's really cool. And I think that probably just seeped into my brain a bit. Um, Same with things like, I'm not a huge anime person, but I was like really into Pokemon. I guess that's another Nintendo thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'd watch the Pokemon cartoon. And that's another thing. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, I guess for slightly higher brow (laughs) consumption, uh, my grandma is a really big fan of literature. That's the fiction side of things. So, like, she introduced me to all kinds of different writers, including, like, Haruki Murakami mm-hmm. in, like, junior high school. So I remember reading his books, I think, younger than, like, any, I mean, younger than anyone in my town. Uh, but, like, so I was always kind of, like, getting glimpses of it. Mm-hmm. The same with music. It was kind of like you'd see Pitchfork write about Shugo Tokumaru or Cornelius or something. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. But it was never like a like like a focused interest in Japan, I guess. It wasn't until I came to the country and it's kind of, you know, instantly, you know, you're in Japan, you're surrounded by Japanese things. Like that's when I really started to sort of want to understand more about the context and sort of the why and like, what is this about? Um, Which is all a long way of saying, you know, I like music is obviously the thing I like the most, but I also really enjoy a lot of Japanese TV. Mm -hmm. And like, I do try to do writing about that every once in a while, whether that's sort of the things they air on the just, TV channels or the rise of streaming has been great because you're getting things like Terrace House, Marie Kondo, like things that lots of people are experiencing. And those are fun to look into. Um, Internet culture, I really like, whether that's kind of like YouTubers or just Twitter trends or just everything there. I think that's a really interesting space. Um, I'm not... I'm not too knowledgeable about Japanese cinema. I know kind of the bigger strokes of it, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm always too hesitant to write about that unless it's something that kind of falls under one of my other existing wheelhouses. I never mm-hmm. want to go too like, like that and anime are things and video games. Like I haven't played video games in so long. Like mm-hmm. I feel like I only experience them secondhand, though they're all very interesting. And I like keeping an eye on how they sort of move in the world. But in general, yeah, it's mostly music. Music's the big one. TV. Very like, yeah, there's nothing like I'm not too knowledgeable about visual art. It's always intersecting with music. Like if an artist does a cool CD jacket or something, I'm like, Mm. oh, okay, that's cool. But yeah, it's never like sort of the starting point for me. Right, right. So I guess really it's like you're able to stay current or you're able to like maintain 
your, let's say, expert status by your words, not mine, <laughs> but by just like your passion and your interest for the subject, right? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And just also, and that might be where sort of the, the sort of more journalistic newsy part comes in, where it's kind of like, you know, I got to know what's happening, like keeping mm-hmm. track on news. Right. Like, that's definitely something I think that helps a lot, especially with a, with what is a niche interest in the grand scheme of things, like, kind of knowing what's happening and what's coming is very helpful. So, right, right. You had you mentioned like, the English language coverage is kind of limited um, in terms of, you know, like certain kinds of Japanese music or certain coverage. But how, in terms of Japanese language coverage Mm -hmm. and for yourself, like following it or knowing what's going on in terms of the Japanese side, do you, do you make a point of like keeping track of what um, like, a Japanese journalist might be doing or are you like certain um, online publications are you going through every so often how do you kind of handle that side of it oh definitely trying to keep track of what's happening in the domestic media for sure I mean that's they have the you know heartbeat of the industry and pop culture in general so that's very important. And yeah, maybe a lot of that's just through Twitter at this point. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of like following music websites in Japanese. They could be things like uh, Natalie, Sinra. Um, there's just a bunch of sites that just do sort of news posts, interviews, occasional feature writing. And following sort of what people are talking about. Um, it's definitely when you find a really good music writer in any language, like it's always good to just follow them and see what they're talking about. So yeah, there's definitely individuals who like just, I come across and, you know, I'll try to keep tabs on what they're doing Mm -hmm. because they're very knowledgeable and have a different sort of insight into the industry than I can get as somebody who's kind of always at arm's length, but can also find different ways in. So, oh, definitely. It's I try to always keep track of especially what Japanese people are talking about and what they're listening to. You know, even if it's looking at like Shunkan Bunshun, which is the big like weekly tabloid here in Japan, they're always like getting scoops on people. They're really good at finding scandals. It's mm-hmm. a good way to look at it. Uh, they blew open the whole... Uh, Summer Olympic uh, opening ceremony controversy from earlier this year. Uh, everybody remember the Olympics? I kind of do. <laughs> and so it's seeing things like that, even if it's kind of just like, like, ooh, tabloid journalism, or just even looking at the sort of like Nichon-esque message boards and trying to see like, so what are they talking about? Even if it's like to be disgusted about it. Mm. It's, it's all over the place. I mean, maybe part of it is if I don't see it on Twitter, Twitter is kind of where I start all of this because it's just such an easy way to curate what you want to see. And, but I do kind of just jump all over the place. If you find something interesting, kind of do a deep dive into it. Hmm. Um, try to listen to a few Japanese music podcasts as well. Those are starting to become a bit more prominent, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm far from like a fluent native 
like Japanese speaker or listener. And so there's always kind of a gap that requires a little extra like effort to be like pausing something and be like, what was that? And like, you know, right. it does disrupt things a little bit. Right, right, right. So yeah, you briefly, you know, you're getting into some of your, some of your deep dives and your process a little bit. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, the best way if you're going to write an article is a direct interview, which, you know, I'm sure through the pandemic might not have been as possible, but I know for yourself, you've interviewed loads of different, you know, artists and people in pop culture and different sort of uh, people in the industry, the music industry mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, were there, you know, going through that and getting to meet some of these people, were there a few moments that kind of uh, stand out or like some surreal moments you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm sitting down with uh, this person or, you know, it's been kind of like really like someone that you've always wanted to meet? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are like, it's weird because I always feel this is maybe is just a like a defense mechanism or just like a, you know, an ego check, a way to not let myself get too obnoxious. No, Lord knows that's a failure. But like, I never try to get too starstruck, like, or anything like that. Um, I also think it's a bit problematic with pop culture journalism when people are a little too much of a fan in their writing or presentation. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, I can never ask anyone I interview for a photo, like, um, to each their own, of course. But when I see other journalists do that, I'm always like, whoa, how do you do that um so in general i try to always feel a little bit detached kind of like you know this is my job Mm -hmm. like you know i'm not gonna like geek out over this um even though (laughs) there are many opportunities like many instances in the past where like it does feel a bit surreal uh a big one um and this is a running theme i guess throughout is well i was still an english teacher actually which is funny. I remember I had to take a sick day to do this interview. Um, I interviewed Perfume, uh, Mm -hmm. the group that kind of like, I mean, honestly, their music really did push me to do this more because it was just so like great. And they're probably my favorite group ever. Um, So getting to talk to them in 2014, 2015, I forget when, it was before their first world tour of North America. Oh, okay. So this um, wasn't to do with the book or anything. This was long before that. No, no, this is way yeah. before. This was just pitching a web. I pitched a website that actually doesn't exist anymore. It was very good <laughs> called Wondering Sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, this group's going to try to, you know, tour internationally. They're really interesting. You know, they've influenced a lot of American music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I got an interview and I, that was approved, which was cool. And yeah, so I was able to just go to the somewhere between Yokohama and Tokyo and just, yeah, like sit down with them and talk, which was kind of, that was probably the first time it ever felt like, Oh, this is kind of crazy. Right. These are like, not just like big names, but also like big names for me. For sure. Uh, See, that's definitely a very like, yeah. Like for anyone, I think that would be surreal and you just kind of have to like deal with it. Uh, In the years since, I mean, yeah, I'm not too, I'm trying to think of like, what the, the one time, this wasn't an interview, 
though I guess it was kind of tied to one. The one time I ever felt like a total nerd and like a total like, like I'm sure the artists themselves thought I was a <laughs> lunatic. Um, in 2018, I interviewed Maria Takeuchi, a very famous Japanese singer songwriter who she has a song called Plastic Love from the 1980s that became this big YouTube phenomena because of the algorithm and city pop. So like mm. it became this huge global thing and it still kind of is. Um, I was able to set up an interview with her, her first English language interview. Uh, it took six months to set it up. It was intense, Damn. but it was great. She was lovely. Um, fantastic interview. Uh, I was invited to see a show um, done by her husband, uh, who is an equally as famous Japanese singer-songwriter named Tatsuro Yamashita, who also has a lot of these city pop songs that have become very like uh, embraced by global audiences in the past 10 years. It's like, this guy's a like super legend, and mm-hmm. he doesn't do interviews. He's totally just like, he's awesome. His music is incredible. Go check it out. Uh, something that happens regularly with Japanese live shows um, pre-pandemic was after the show, guests usually have to go backstage and there's like a little greeting thing um, where you, everyone like the artist comes out, says, thank you for coming to the show. And then usually you would line up and say hello to this artist and like, hey, great show that was fantastic like very like industry stuff so yeah i had to go backstage to meet this tatsuro yamashita and maria takeuchi who i'd interviewed and like that was the first time i was ever like really nervous to talk to somebody Mm. just because it's like this guy is somebody i haven't interviewed this is like my first impression of him like making things worse no shade but um the label person who had sort of brought me there and set all of this up he had told me like oh when you meet him you should like say like a song or an album you really like (laughs) so like i get up to this famous japanese artist and like i just start probably like how i sound now i just start like talking about like hi nice to meet you like oh these following songs are really good and you know this album you did like that really had a big blah 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 like i remember him just laughing and being like you are a funny guy. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that was the one time I totally felt like, yeah, like the sort of reporter persona vanished and I just turned into this stammering fan. Right, 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 right. And like, yeah, I think about that a lot and just his like reaction, which was very sweet. But I was also like, man, he must think I'm a, like, who let this guy in? <laughs> um because beyond that it's just kind of these moments where you're like i'm surprised they're letting me sit with these artists because these are such big artists in japan Mm -hmm. and like even in some cases globally where it's like you know it's it's surprising that just because i know kind of the trends and what no other english media is reaching out to them and because most of them aren't based in japan like i can get interviews with big names um, a big example of that is in 2017 i talked to an artist named kenshi yonezu who would go on to like the album he put out after our interview was like the biggest seller of the year it really kind of turned him into the top artist in japan 
Um, but I remember just, yeah, it was like right before that and just sitting in a room with him right. and just being in retrospect, it's like, that was really weird. Cause this guy's <laughs> like num like literally a million seller at this point. But like, I was just mm -hmm. able to meet him on some Friday night in an office. Right. right Those right. are the, that's what really sticks with it. It's just a weird feeling. Sure. Sure. Um, in terms of, you know, your process, like when you're meeting these people or like coming up with um, the questions. I'm not sure, like, maybe you have certain time limits for some of them and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure, like, you go with translators for some of them. Um, so in terms of, like, coming up with, like, your list of questions or what you're going to talk about, it is a lot of it kind of based on the story you have in mind? Is it questions that are, like, of interest to you? Is it kind of like what you think a potential audience would want to know or kind of like a mix of everything? It really depends on the artists themselves too. Um, some artists, and a lot of it is kind of looking at existing coverage and seeing like what's not mm. being talked about or like thinking for an English language audience, what would they find most interesting? Um, so a lot of that is sometimes it's trying to be more like oh let's get into the technical details of the song let's like tell me how you make it um because a lot of times some artists get that a lot but others you know they're viewed as kind of like pop stars or even like novelties um good example of that is i interviewed viral phenomenon picotado do you remember picotado oh, yeah. yeah yeah pen pineapple apple pen yeah. Um, I interviewed him when that song was blowing up, which was a really cool like uh, convergence of things um, before he met Donald Trump. And like, you know, most people talk to him. They just want to like get like funny quotes. But, you know, I talked to him and asked about his actual like the equipment he used and stuff. And he was like so happy to talk about that. Right. Like, just this the the rhythm boxes and like the programs he used to make the song and his influences mm. like and i saw lots of people even in japan like japanese twitter people were kind of like oh wow it's really cool that he's using this this drum machine to make ppap mm -hmm. um in other cases especially with a lot of pop stars who are maybe they, there's a team behind them that's helping put their music together and they don't necessarily know those details or they aren't necessarily diving into their inspiration for the music. Uh, it's about like interesting stories and just existing as a pop star or a musician. Mm -hmm. um, this is very true for idols and they always have good stories mm -hmm. if they're willing to open up about it. Right. I, I would say, you know, I used to be very like set in my approach to questions. Like I would you know, write everything out and be like, okay, I'll do this, 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 and maybe I'll just switch the order. Mm -hmm. but i have found you know in the past four years and this is maybe just an experience thing like i almost just want a general list of things i want to maybe touch on and to me it's actually more important that you find good follow-up questions to get them talking more mm -hmm. so i always go in now unless it's a really tightly timed interview and that happens where it's kind of like you have 20 minutes go then you have to just like bang, bang, bang. Make sure you get the most important things you want. Yeah. But when there's like an hour or like the artist is kind of like, okay, you know, I, I'm not in a rush today. Mm -hmm. 
um, which is rare because most of these happen on like media days. But finding what they think is interesting and just digging into that is my number one way of approaching an interview. Um, it's not being too dogmatic about what I ask. It's leaving lots of room to the point where like there are times I'll just ignore half of my questions because they've hit, yeah. they've introduced something that's way more interesting. And it's like, I don't want to derail it by being like, Oh, uh, let's talk about something that you probably don't care about, but I wrote on in word yesterday. So we right. have to get to it. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. And that, I would say that's a huge like piece of advice for any writer doing interviews is don't like limit yourself. Don't be afraid to sort of just go off track. Don't be afraid to um, something you encounter a lot in Japanese entertainment journalism. And I think it's becoming more true globally is, you know, companies and managers try to be very protective and controlling of the media. So like you'll get situations where they'll ask, can we see your questions in advance? Stuff like mm, that. Yeah. Um, and annoying. Sometimes you have to deal with it. But important lesson, you can still ask a question they don't want you to right, <laughs> at the right, interview. Right. And the artist can just say no or they'll answer it. So, so yeah, it's just not being worried about this idea that an interview has to be constrained unless it's for time. That's the only thing that'll sort of change your approach, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, especially like some of these artists that, you know, maybe like you mentioned, they're doing a media day and they're getting interviews all day and it's like the same, yeah. same sort of things all day. And it, it just becomes like robotic for them. So like yeah. when you switch it up or it's something like they're interested in or they want to talk about, um, it, the interview actually becomes a little more real and more, I guess, meaningful, right? I guess this is a somewhat unfair advantage. Um, and it doesn't always apply, but it does. One of the advantages of being a non-Japanese writer in Japan is like, there is this feeling of like, sometimes, you know, I'm an outsider right. kind of, and like, but they're like way more interested in talking to me sometimes because mm -hmm. it's this feeling of like, Oh, this is different for sure. And I don't know how much of this is just sort of like, you know, oh you're so great patrick blah 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 but like there are artists who are kind of like oh that interview was way more fun than other like japanese interviews um i think it's just because i have a different perspective in the same way that i think if a japanese journalist talked to an american artist they'd probably find that really interesting because it's a different experience mm -hmm. so being able to come at it from a different angle um does help a lot because it does like on a media day it breaks up what is a lot of like the same interview over and over again and then you have somebody like me who will just who lord knows what all it's way less <laughs> right. structured i think is the key like right it's about getting a conversation going mm -hmm. and that can sometimes surprise artists when they're mm -hmm. used to this more like bullet point bullet point bullet point thing right right yeah that's cool um I gotta, yeah, I really gotta thank you for coming on, man. Sharing, sharing a lot of uh, no worries. Wisdom Thanks for having me on and knowledge. Fun to talk. Um, I do have, I do got two final questions that I ask every guest. If that's cool, um, go for it. As this is called the Inspirations Pod, uh, they're kind of related to that theme. So the first one is, 
what are three things or three people that have really inspired you either in your work or in your life in general? Um, three things or three people that have given you inspiration? Oh, wow. That is, whew, that's a tough one. I would say, I mean, I'll have to acknowledge my mother, of course, um, though I think she would be, she always told me, don't go into freelance. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was very clear, like, don't do this. Um, so I appreciate that, that she tried to steer me away from it. But also for introducing writing, love of it, blah, blah, blah. You know, you could write the whole mark card. Um, who else? Oh, 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 inspiration. There's so many people, honestly. Sure. Like, to shout out, like, not an individual person, but a site that is very important to me. I used to write for a few years ago, but it's just always kind of inspiring to me and how it, the writers they bring on, how they approach music writing. It's a website called the Singles Jukebox, um, which existed originally on the website Stylus, which I mentioned a while back. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just a bunch of people who love music, listening to songs from all around the world and offering their thoughts about it. And like, just the amount of writers there are just so like, yeah, they're just so good at what they do. And like, just the enthusiasm, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Um, cause sometimes with music writing, you can feel like, oh, does the writer really care about this? Is the writer really like, enjoy this music? Right. The singles jukebox, it's always so earnest and honest. And like, even today, seeing that is so like, great. I love it. Um, everyone should check it out. And then if I were to do a third person, ah, I guess I'll do a like combination, I guess, which is, I know I'm cheating, but hey, gotta break the rules. Um, I mean, really the people, I wouldn't be writing in Japan if it weren't for uh, the aforementioned Ian Martin, who you've had on your show, uh, who, you know, like, connected me to the next person, uh, my original music editor at the Japan Times, and still works there, Sean McKenna, mm -hmm. who has done a great job sort of like, helping shape my stories, editing them, you know, taking these like, stupid ideas I have, and like, actually focusing them into something that's good and like fit for a newspaper. Um, yeah, without them, I wouldn't be writing in Japan about Japanese pop culture at all. And like, I think both of them in their own ways, whether it's reading Ian's work for so long, even when I came to Japan mm -hmm. or just working with Sean for such a long time and sort of, you know, developing that rapport with an editor, which is very important. Like yeah, without them, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. For sure. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Great. And uh, last one for you then. So what does it mean on the flip side, right? What, it, what does it mean uh, for you? Like someone reads one of your articles or they listen to your pod or they see, see what you've been up to, you know, whether music or like you said, you've done tons of the Konbini stuff. What, what does it mean for you um, to be an inspiration for someone else? Maybe, you know, they want to <laughs> listen to this album or they want to start writing themselves what does it mean for you to inspire other people i mean it's a nice it's obviously a nice feeling um it's great to hear like you know and it happens every once in a while people saying very nice things about what i do i appreciate that um 
ultimately i'm just happy people read any of it honestly <laughs> like like truly it always surprises me people will subscribe to the newsletter or seek out what i write for the japan times you know that to navigate around the paywall there's ways to do it folks don't give up um i will say the most important thing to me is i do really want people to more so than anything with me uh, i think it's important that i'm not like in the spotlight i think like i'm happy to do podcasts and talk about all this but like what I've always wanted is I want the artists and the art and the music and all of that to get the attention, you know, and the most like rewarding feelings is seeing whether it's a label somewhere picking up a Japanese artist because a story you wrote helped introduce them to a bigger audience or seeing another writer sort of like who sort of come to something because you introduced it via your early writing, then kind of take it somewhere higher is really great. Like that's a really seeing something gain more attention or maybe the best feeling. And this is maybe something that applies to musicians themselves as well. Like it's great knowing that there are actual artists who've read my blog over the past decade and they've absorbed music from that. And it shaped their own output, their own art. Mm -hmm. Like I like that all of this is in conversation. And if it can reach people and sort of expand people's views of music globally, mm. um, especially in Japan, I think that's great. And that's the thing I'm most happy about is when it's cool when someone says, hey, that was a great piece of writing. It's way more rewarding when someone's like, thank you for leading me to this music and right. this artist. Right. And then they can take that love there because mm. that's what I want to see. Right, Me, right. I'm just some guy who writes. Like, right, right, right. I, my goal is to get the artists to the world and their thoughts and their voice. Right. Like, That's cool. Yeah. Contextualize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Leading people to this art and maybe, yeah. you know, making new art themselves or just the whole, you know, it's all, like That's, a whole circle. Those yeah. are definitely the, yeah. the moments that are kind of most like, oh, it's cool that there's something like those paths that emerge are really interesting rare but really cool definitely definitely yeah so yeah i gotta gotta thank you again man for uh coming on your insights uh throughout the years <laughs> like all the articles i've definitely read a good number of them you're we didn't even have a chance to get to your book um the, <laughs> no the one the one of folks perfume. go buy it that's <laughs> they, people just gotta go buy it and then they can learn about it go go buy his book uh, on perfume 33 and a third japan series um yeah i know you've done countless blog entries you got the newsletter that i'm now signed up to so i'm gonna be looking thank for that you. one much appreciated thank you so much hopefully we can meet up in fujirak one day again definitely definitely in some, in some future <laughs> right right so yeah for people listening in uh where can they where can they follow or keep up with patrick saint michel yeah i mean probably the best go-to spot is twitter which I do enjoy using. Uh, you can find me at MB Melodies, M E L O D I E S. Um, from there, you can also, I guess, go to my my Substack, mbmelodies.substack.com newsletter that I try to update at least once a week. Um, 
it's free. Don't worry. I'm not going to charge you. <laughs> um, so that's another good place to sort of get a general sense of my writing. Otherwise, Twitter is your best spot. I'll post. I am not above shameless self-promotion. So you'll find out what I'm doing through there. Cool, cool. Okay, well, yeah, I got to thank you for taking the time. I know you, you got a lot of got a lot of writing to get to, I'm sure. But uh, so many emails, it's all good. But uh, yeah, thanks once again, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening, listener. Cool, cool. So yeah, that was uh, Patrick St. Michel. And this is James Mellon with ADSR Inspirations. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you want to hear more insightful and inspirational chats from people based in Japan and all over the world, make sure to follow us at adsrcollective.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at adsrcollective. Then listen to the pod on Spotify, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Until next time, stay inspired.